This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Thank you for having me. Um, it's uh, good to be here um, and to see all of you. I've been organizing. Uh, with the Industrial Areas Foundation for the last 20 years, although there are many, many people who have been doing this far longer than I have. Um, I can no longer say I'm one of the babies, but um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, an oddity for, for, <laughs> for doing this for 20 years. It doesn't feel like it's been that long. Um, I'm currently the lead organizer with Nevadans for the Common Good, but I worked the majority of my career. I've been in California and uh, a little bit of time in Texas um, with various projects throughout the state of California. And actually what I'd like to do is um, start, uh, I want to show you a video since we're in the world of videos. And I was just saying earlier, I am learning this new medium. Um, our, I mean, our work, I'll, I'll kind of set it up by saying our work, um, we, we work with institutionally based organizations. So organizations made up of organizations. Um, congregations, often largely, but also labor unions, community organizations, nonprofits, parent groups, and those local organizations in a city or a, a region um, are led by the leadership of those institutions, whether it's parents, teachers, clergy, etc. And our bias really is um, making life better where people's lives hit the ground. So that often means um, city politics, uh, state politics, county politics, getting involved in the issues at a very local level. Um, and that's where we start everything. We start everything with stories. We start everything with people, um, who they are and what they care about. And then if there's a possibility to do something at a wider statewide level or um, sometimes very rarely at a national level, we do. Um, but we always start and go back to the local, uh, the local community and the local institution. Um, and I got involved in this work. I grew up in a working class Baptist background of uh, church in, in Oregon and, you know, got increasingly angry uh, seeing how there was this contradiction between what I understood the gospel to be saying and what my church appeared to be doing. And, and, you know, the inability of people to be able to talk about power. And I just would get angry and, and yell and say things. And it, you know, and it was very frustrating <laughs> and for me and for, you know, any pastor I encountered, and that's kind of how I collided with all these other crazy people who were doing this thing called organizing that I had never heard of. I was very, I grew up in a conservative context, was not fond of activism, grew up in Portland, Oregon. So there are lots of like liberal activists with signs and they irritated me. And so, you know, this, this was not something that I was born into. Um, but, uh, so that's kind of a little bit about the, the kind of organizing we do. Um, this video I'm going to show you is from last year, it's from 2020 and, you know, the pandemic sort of changed the way we had to do this work. Um, we do a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations and small group conversations. And so when the pandemic happened, we just like, boom, got online and started, okay, we have to start calling people and reaching out to people and find out how this is impacting them and did, and so that was, you know, March, March, April, May. In those months, we started listening to people and the organizations in California started hearing um, a, a lot of stories, but a very consistent theme was undocumented people who lost their jobs were mm -hmm. unable to access any resources because they don't have papers, they weren't eligible for the stimulus and, you know, and the jobs just stopped. Um, 
We had a, young, a woman who, you know, she worked five jobs and she lost four of them overnight. Um, and so, you know, this was something we were hearing everywhere in our house meetings, in our conversations. And so um, very quickly, um, decide, I mean, we'd, we'd known about the California earned income tax credit is a, a way for low income people to get tax credits um, uh, if they fall under a particular threshold. But um, it had been it, it, it had not yet extended to taxpayers who pay their taxes with an independent taxpayer ID number, which is an ITIN. Um, uh, which any undocumented person is eligible for an ITIN and then they pay taxes, but they don't get anything back. And so one way to get money to folks without documents would be to get them a tax credit through the ITIN. And we knew and it was sort of dead at the state legislature. It wasn't going anywhere. And so our organizations um, organized to push for it. So this, so on May 5th, everyone calls it the Cinco de Mayo action. Um, we held an action with over a thousand people from across the state of California on Zoom. And this was May of last year. So this is before we were all really comfortable with Zoom. We had a number of bishops from a variety of traditions and we had a number of state legislators um, and a lot of, of leaders from six different IAF organizations across the state. Um, and so it's about five minutes. Um, this is, this is, these are clips from the action itself. The entire thing is the action. The action was 60 minutes one hour long, um, and the the chair who's mostly speaking is Reverend Julie Roberts Frank, a Disciples of Christ minister from Southern California. Good evening, Southwest IAF leaders of the great state of California. 50 leaders in this meeting. With 75 leaders from 18 institutions. We have over 100 people on the call. Guided by the values of justice in our spiritual traditions and the values of democracy, we assemble our collective power to address a gaping hole in the safety net through which members of our institutions are falling. Millions of California workers in essential sectors are not receiving any financial assistance through the CARES Act. Food distribution, food service, health care, child care, elder care, all of these services are essential for our survival. Many of them are undocumented, but their work contributes billions of dollars to the California economy. It is high time for their value to be recognized. Now we're going to hear some real life examples of the struggles our essential workers are facing. I used to work 40 hours a week. Now I'm working 16 hours a week. And I called the landlord about how, wanna, how I'm gonna pay my rent. And the landlord said, you're gonna get help for the government. But I do taxes with my eating number and I don't have no help at all. For the last past 18 years, I've been paying taxes. I don't understand why they can give it to us an 18 number to pay taxes, but in this situation, we cannot have it, any kind of help. So what can we do to address this problem? We are proposing an expansion of the California EITC to include ITIN filers. So exactly what is the California Earned Income Tax Credit? It's a way to give cash back to low-income and moderate-income California workers when they file taxes. Why is this good economic policy train a slowdown? The economy is stronger for all of us when people can pay their rent or their mortgage or pay their taxes, afford health care. We have a number of religious leaders from different traditions with us tonight. Well, 
uh, we talk about the physical distancing, we have to also recognize that we, we need to also uh, not practice uh, a, a moral distancing. We as a society have to address that inequality. It's not an act of charity. It's all about justice and our voices need to be heard. We are now going to ask some of these elected officials for their reactions and start a conversation about how we can fix these injustices. It's not easy to get a, a thousand people to be listening in, to not just be listening in, but to be involved in something this important. We have just been hit as a society by a tidal wave, and yet no lifeboats, no life jackets have been given to our undocumented brothers and sisters. So how can we, as IAF institutions across California, how can we work with you to help you move this forward? We included this in the budget um, last year uh, on both the Senate and the Assembly. And when we get to that point of the final cuts, the final decisions on the budget, your voices have to be louder and clearer than ever. We are able to gather 900 plus leaders from across California because we have already been doing the indispensable work of building power in our local institutions and communities. It's slow, patient, powerful work. We are knitting together body politic to act during this season of crisis. Send each of us forth fiercely committed to do the work entrusted to us and make us bold to act. This is why I stand beside Organized with my community. With several leaders around the church, we've been calling people to people can hear our stories because this is time to change. This is our work, and this is the moment. God will be with us. Adelante, Dios está con nosotros. So that was um, uh, a snapshot of an action on Zoom um, with uh, six different organizations. And the end of the story, well, the end of that particular action, we the organizations organized over the course of that summer and pushed the legislature um, and the governor to pass the expansion. And they did. And we thought that they were only going to pass it for you know, families with children under the age of six. They ended up passing it for everyone. Um, and there were, there were, I mean, there was a letter writing campaign, there was a push, there was testifying meetings. Um, and then this year, uh, Governor Newsom's, uh, the, the newest plan to push out the additional money to undocumented people, they are doing it by means of the Cal EITC. So without that expansion, there would not have been the, all of any of the stimulus talk to undocumented people in California. That is the, the method for, for getting that money to them. So that's um, uh, a, a, an, an action story, um, and I guess I will uh, very briefly, I have another slide, um, just kind of share our methodology for doing this work, and then we can have a brief conversation after that, but it is sometimes helpful to kind of visualize and see um, you know, what is this type of organizing, what is broad-based organizing, um, by uh, comparing it to what it's not so um, this is just a, a quick and dirty sort of comparison, um, broad-based organizing, what it is, and I've differentiated it from civic or nonprofit work, uh, which is actually the kind of work I did before I was in organizing, or movement uh, activism kind of work, which um, a lot of folks have also been a part of. 
Um, so the purpose of broad-based organizing is really sustainable relational power. It is not about a particular issue or a particular uh, community. It is in a particular area, how do we build sustainable relational power with folks who are ordinarily not at decision-making tables to have a seat at the table? So that is always the goal, the power, is, power for what to be able to get into fights like this one um, on behalf of families and communities um, to make life better around things like housing, immigration, public safety. Um, it can be a range of things, um, big and small, but the purpose of it is ongoing power. Um, that is different from civic nonprofit work um, that is service oriented. We are not service providers. Um, or movement is often uh, raising awareness, demanding change now. Sometimes, I mean, organizing will often can move into movement. The civil rights movement is a very good example of that. But there was a ton of organizing that happened before the movement that allowed it to happen. Um, so the members of a broad-based organization are institutional. Um, so as I said before, intermediary institutions, congregations, um, parent groups, uh, there's, there's a fair diversity, there's diversity among members. And that's in part because institutions, um, they have a values base, they have people, they have money, and they stick around. They're, they're in a community um, and, and can um, uh, kind of act as a, 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 a standing for the individuals who are, who are there. Um, civic nonprofit work, the members are usually individuals and a movement, it's just, it's usually come y'all. Um, there aren't distinctions. People show up and sometimes they show up once, sometimes they show up all the time, but it is not as consistent. Um, the leadership of a broad-based organization, um, our, our leadership, they operate as a collective and they are rooted in their institutions. So in order to be in leadership in one of our organizations, you need to be blessed by and credentialed by your colleagues um, and you are accountable to them. Um, and so it is a very institutionally based way of operating um, you don't just get to show up, um, you know, uh, and and be the spokesperson. Um, you've got to be someone who has a following. Um, and it is collective. And so decisions need to be vetted through all kinds of folks. And, you know, there's house meetings are our central way of operating, which are small group conversations rooted in experience. Um, civic and nonprofit, um, there's, you know, it differs because that is usually run by a staff and a board that are that are individuals and movements um, have a tendency toward a single charismatic leader or lately a lot of the movement kind of work is, is leaderless. Um, we uh, invest a lot of time in developing leaders and working with leaders and thinking with leaders about how to find other leaders. Um, money, kind of the way that we think about money is you raise your own money. And so the institutions that are part of one, any of our organizations, um, uh, right now the organization that I'm working with, Nevadans for the Common Good, has 42 dues-paying institutions. And they raise $90,000 a year um, through their dues. Uh, that is, uh, you then have a dog in the fight. You've, you've, you know, you've skin in the game, whatever the metaphor is. You are in it. Um, and it's also independent money. Um, it's not, you know, going to go away because the funder decides that they don't, you know, want to work on what you're working on anymore. Uh, and that means that I work for the people of Nevadans for the Common Good um, and I'm accountable to them because they're the ones paying my salary. Uh, the, the other way that they raise money is through an investment campaign. So lots of the leaders also contribute and then they go out and, and raise money from, 
you know, organizations in the community. So between those two, that should be the bulk of the budget. It's then supported by foundations and um, a lot of denominations will invest in this kind of work, but really the heart of it really needs to be um, independent and from the members. Um, nonprofit work, you know, I worked in, in nonprofits and it's a lot of foundations, a lot of donors, it's other people's money um, for good causes, but it's just a different way of, of raising money. Movement work doesn't not need a lot of money, um, but individual supporters will sometimes fund things. Or a lot of times now we see on both the left and the right, very rich interests will fund, um, you know, supposed grassroots movements. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really being funded by a very large, uh, wealthy um, corporation or donor. Um, issues, the way that we approach issues, we are multi-issue. Um, and the, the issues in a local organization are determined by the interest of the leaders and the interest of the community, whether it's a winnable issue, people don't need to be, you know, taught how to lose, they know how we all know how to do that on our own. So we want to make sure that, you know, this is something that is actually possible. Um, and then does this fight that we're getting into, does it help us build power? Does it help us live to another day? Does it help us recruit more people and institutions and, you know, sustainability? Um, the issues in, an, in the nonprofit world are determined by the need um, at the moment. Um, I mean, lots of nonprofits have had to shift into rental assistance these days um, because of, of the need happening in our you know, communities, uh, the merit of the issue or the funding that's available. Um, movements tend to be single issue or one abstract idea. There's a, cent you know, a central theme um, that's being pushed. Action. Uh, action for us is aimed, calculated, and strategic. We, we have a target. I mean, our target in the action you just saw was primarily the governor, um, also the legislators, but we had thought the legislators might get something through, but we weren't certain that the governor would sign it. So even though he wasn't at that action, um, the fact that we had a thousand people with all these bishops and legislators, I mean, it, it made noise. Um, and so we're, we're very calculated and strategic about, you know, who, who is this action on? What is it? Who is, you know, who are we trying to get a reaction from? Um, and, uh, you know, there needs to be an exchange of power. In the nonprofit world, it's not really focused on action. We would call it activity. Service provision is good and necessary, but it is not leading to a reaction from anyone. It is an end in itself. It is serving people. Um, movement is acting to act. It is sometimes when connected to an organized strategy can, can be part of a strategy, but often a lot of the activism um, is action for action's sake. Um, so that is just a, a brief overview of kind of, you know, how, how we think about um, building broad-based organizations and the ways that we operate. And you saw a little bit about um, how it played out. I know my time is coming to a close and I've got to, I've got to leave you, but um, the, while the political fights are exciting and the winds are not as frequent as you'd want them to be, but they're exhilarating, the thing that sustains me in this and the, thing, the reason why I do this has to do with working with, with people and the, the way in which people develop as public, um, uh, impressive public people who understand their own story and their own interest and can stand up. I mean, that is, and I mean that, I mean, the, the political mm -hmm. piece of it is interesting, but that is not uh, the long-term part. In fact, what I'm going to do right now, what I'm working on this weekend, we have a training 
Um, with a, there are a hundred people who've registered. Half of them speak Spanish, half of them speak English. And we're running a three-day training over the weekend. Um, uh, it's called Recognizing the Stranger. And it's rooted in understanding your baptismal vow, understanding what it means to um, be the body of Christ. This is in a mostly Catholic tradition. Um, and then how do you have conversations within your parish community and with the, co the community surrounding your parish so that you understand um, the interest and in the stories of the people there. Um, out of that, we obviously wanna do something about the severe injustices um, in a lot of these neighborhoods, um, but you know, there are people who are sidelined in their parish too, and who have no decision-making capacities or authority, um, despite the fact that you know, they're very smart people. So, um, uh, you know, the, the transformation of human beings is, for me, the most important part of this work. The topic is organizations of low-income people. But under that topic, in fact, I think the faith-based community organizations that have grown up in this country over recent decades are the strongest community organizations in the United States. There are others. There are secular, various kinds of other institutions. But in terms of organizations that include a lot of low-income people, they are the best, I think. And they also had this great emphasis on training people. So they train, um, according to that uh, study that was done in 2000, they train uh, informal training. They have 24,000 core leaders who go to meetings. And so there's a, particip a, a practice of activism. And then 1,600 people a year were going through multi-day training to, to be organizers. So the training emphasis is excellent. Um, and also they had this, con you know, uh, they embrace conflict. That in our society, there are real conflicts and they need to be surfaced and dealt with. It's not just a matter of asking people to be nice. The, so I think, you know, I think I, th they are a, an important development um, that's been heavily supported by the churches and other faith groups. Um, so it started in the 60s with Saul Alinsky. And Saul Alinsky was a community organizer in, in South Central <clears throat> Chicago. And, uh, and he, he wrote a, one of his books is called Revelry for Radicals. He was really a pioneer in how to organize. And one of his partners was Monsignor Jack Egan. And he got Catholic money to support this radical Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky was a pretty radical guy. <clears throat> and all about, I mean, at least he was perceived as radical. And then he trained somebody who trained uh, Ernie Cortez. Ernie Cortez uh, lived in San Antonio. And so he wanted to do what Saul Alinsky had done in Chicago in Southwest, Southeast Tech. South Texas. Um, and uh, Ernie Cortez, who's now, he's even older than I am. And he spoke uh, at an IAF, um, at an IAF training that was part of a, a CDSP course that happened just a couple weeks ago. He's a real firebrand. He's a great guy. <laughs> he, he, he comes every year, every year yeah. we embrace ourselves. Right. So, 
out of um, so Ernie Cortez and the, the that that uh, Texas experience was also very both South Central Chicago and the Texas experience were very successful, and they showed that you this kind of organization what Anna described institution based it has different names but um, institution based community organizing could be very successful at achieving change and also at equipping people. And so um, industrial areas, I think um, Saul Alinsky founded Industrial Areas Foundation. There was a, there's an organization called, it was called PICO for a long time. Now it's called Faith in Action. It's primarily Catholic. Um, it's very much focused right now on Black Lives Matter. So it's race first. So it has a somewhat different emphasis, but it's the same idea. I just went on their site and Faith in Action has one section on what is faith, faith-based community organizing. It doesn't mention any other organization except Faith in Action. What the cob? You know, they, they're, they're, they're rival. And then there's Gamaliel. And um, there was a secular organization called Acorn. They did a lot of good organizing, but then they had some trouble with stealing money. Um, somebody stole, there was some money, you know, some embezzlement. So uh, it really shut down the organization. And then there are smaller ones, but it's basically now IAF and uh, uh, Faith in Action. Um, there's been, um, as of uh, 2000, which is the only comprehensive study that I could find, of the readings that, that I assigned, one is that study. It's really worth reading the executive summary. So if you didn't do it, read it, because it really is, that's good. And then the second reading I listed really is a journalistic account of what's in the study with some examples of how it's worked out in different places. Um, as of that study, so in 2000, there were 130. 33 faith-based community organizations across the country. My guess it's now up to 200. As of that time, 87% of the member organizations were religious congregations, mainly black churches, black Baptist churches, mainline Protestants, and a lot of Catholics. Um, it was rapidly growing as of that time. The support of the of the Christian community, I think is really notable. This is a heck of a story and we don't tell it in a, one reason to do the overall, the overall survey is because it's bigger than faith in action or it's bigger than IAF. It's not just their story. It's a story of uh, communities of faith and the politics of poverty. And it hasn't been told that way. So um, 87, you know, it's, um, 87% of 4,000 institutions are, are local congregations that are involved in fighting for fighting on issues, usually issues that are important to poor people in their own community. That's it's somewhat uncomfortable. You know, in my the place I live, Alexandria, Virginia, and in, uh, you know, it's uh, there are a lot of older white people who live in the core of the town, and they have money, and then poor people live on the other side of the highway and there's no housing the, the affordable housing crisis is there as not as bad as san francisco but it's serious 
So the, the local uh, faith-based community organization is organizing in churches, including churches with a lot of higher income people, to push the city council to do something about affordable housing. Um, so anyway, I just think the local, the support of local church is part of the story. And then the money. As of 2000, 20% of the money was coming from, surprise, the Catholic bishops. <laughs> you know, this is a pretty conservative crowd. And <clears throat> they do three or four um, big, um, big fundraisers in, in the parishes across the country. Everybody raises money for, uh, for Caritas or for, but one of their four big fundraisers across, in parishes every year, collections, is for the Campaign for Human Development. And that many mainly goes to these organizations. So 20% of the money, and, it's the, the, and for the new organizations, more of the money comes from the Catholic Campaign for Human Development or the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and other faith groups who put a lot of money into it too. I should have said, Wendy, that also there are, are a lot of Jewish synagogues that are involved in these organizations. Um, they're important. Also now, I think increasingly mosques, not very many evangelical churches. Um, then, but so, and then I think that it's happened. You know, Rockefeller was an early funder, but not right at the beginning. They came in after. You know, the the movement was already moving. There was some success, so Rockefeller funded. Ford Foundation is now funding other. I'm struck that other foundations, big foundations, are putting money in. Um, but that's relatively new. And then, as Anna said, uh, the organizations really try to get money from their members. But at least as of 2000, that was maybe 30% of their funding. And the rest comes from, uh, well, that's what the study shows. Oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't, I thought, for, especially for IAF, that it all comes from dues. They pay, they pay. For, okay. Those, those member organizations pay for everything that the organization, the overall organization does in their locale. Okay. Well, that may be new. That would be a healthy development. Um, I think also just in terms of the faith involvement, the, I think the, the IAF training is fairly widespread in seminaries. At one time, we tried to get uh, training in seminaries on uh, legislative advocacy, faith-based legislative advocacy, you know, sort of bread for the world training. And we, we were running into the fact that there are a number of, a lot of seminaries were already doing IAF training. So I think, I think they've been successful in that regard, and that's great. So, um, you know, a lot of clergy have had the training. I think a contribution that they're uh, making is conflict. When Dean Henry Brady talked to us, he showed us data which showed that um, it compared religious, religious people with people who are part of religious congregations to people who are part of unions. And not surprisingly, the religious people are less, are more conflict averse. You know, they're not, they're not protesting, you know, they want to go meet with, they want to go meet with somebody and ask them to be a nice person, you know, to, to do the right thing. 
I've been in a million of those meetings where we ask in, in the name of God, you know, can't you fund, help us, you know, reduce malnutrition among kids? I mean, what's the point of being here? So I do those meetings, but um, he pointed out that in general, the religious people don't do conflict well. So I think the, the this movement is a really powerful way of teaching uh, uh, religious communities across the country about uh, constructive conflict. Just one other thing, one support that these things are getting now, in which is really extraordinary, is that Pope Francis is a huge enthusiast for organizations, popular or he calls them popular organizations. He's from Argentina and all over Latin America. There are lots of these popular organizations. Partly there are more people who are poor. So it's not just like the bottom 20% of the population, but really the bottom 50% of the population is pretty poor. So those organizations can be pretty broadly representative and, and at the same time, mainly poor. And um, Francis is familiar with a lot of those organizations. And <clears throat> I just, uh, I, while I've been out here, I read this book, um, it let us dream by Pope Francis, and uh, it's really good. But one of his main themes is the importance of organizations of low-income people. And he's done a lot. He's convened a couple times international meetings of um, such organizations. He calls them a global archipelago of associations and movements. They represent the hope of solidarity in an age of exclusion and indifference. So uh, at least for Catholics, you're getting pretty good. You know, <laughs> they're getting pretty good backing from Pope Francis. Um, uh, maybe five years ago, the, I'm guessing the Poor People's Campaign was organized. Again, with really important financial and organizational backing from churches, especially mainline churches. I know the Disciples of Christ have put a lot into people, poor people's campaign. I don't know which uh, the National Council of Churches, I think, has. Um, the poor people's camp, I mean, first they have Reverend William Barber, who is just, if you haven't ever heard him, you know, just Google Reverend William Barber and look at any, any speech he's ever given. He's um, a very gifted um, gifted speaker. He's, he's a he's a preacher, but um, uh, Poor People's Campaign is a secular organization with strong backing, especially from the black churches. Um, so Barber is an important, uh, really important part of it, and I think they've used Barber to to get good press. You know, to, 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 it's a revival of Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign. Um, they've managed to get good media coverage. They developed a really strong digital outreach. Uh, they have good, they've been able to do state level events that are Im impressive. And then the presidential campaign work uh, was uh, really impressive, at least among Democrats. They didn't get to any Republicans, but they were able to get all the Democrats in the primary to come and meet with poor people and hear from poor people, white, black, Latino, about their experiences and what they needed. It was really quite impressive. 
So it's a, I, I'm not sure that they have much on the ground, really. You know, I, don't th- I think in terms of organizational structure, the kind of structure that IAF has or, you know, all those, they don't have anything like that, to my knowledge. But um, I'm not saying that to be critical. I'm saying it. They do, actually. They have, he, they have chapters all, like, I'm part of the Bay Area chapter of the Poor People's Campaign. So well, I may be wrong. They they do. They have a they have a major um it's very much like IAF in that respect, where you do it locally and then it then it scales up from the local to the national. So, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, they really they really they really do. Okay. I'll stand corrected. I'm glad to hear it actually. Is it does it draw from are the people who come to the meetings educated middle class people? So I have only been able to be I'm like Anna in that respect. Since I started being involved with the Poor People's Campaign, it's only been digitally, and so certainly digitally, it it's hard, it's hard to tell, right? But it it certainly it seems to be the case that that people are uh, widely divergent. One of the things Great. in terms of of, um, of demographics in that respect, I I, I want to comment on is one of the earlier things that you had mentioned about the people who are li- liable to come to an IAF meeting or to an organizing, a community organizing meeting. And I've been a a member, a a part of a number of those. And I can tell you far and away, those people are poor people by a a tremendous margin. These are not like like people with a BA sitting in the, in the, on the folding chairs. These are like domestic workers and day laborers. Like it was, impressive and and the people who are raised to speak at those meetings and so and to lead those meetings are those people and it's it is gorgeous to see it is it is just so moving so i think that's part of the that's what anna was saying about watching people come into their own and and watching leaders develop from people who are so insecure and think they have nothing right. to offer. And then all of a sudden they're leading a meeting of hundreds and hundreds of people and effectively, and it just changes them. And it's wonderful. It's just amazing. It's amazing. I do think that the part, then there's also the story of the social media. Cause I think something has happened there that um, with the Sanders and Trump campaign, both organized social grievances, economic grievances. Where did that, I mean, it partly, it just got, things got worse, but also I think people are better connected. So they're connecting through social media, uh, maybe in other ways, but also with those two campaigns. And then with the Trump and Biden campaigns, something happened there that a lot of people who have never voted before came out to vote on both sides. So I think that's part of the same story. And then the things I think we need that, that as I look at this, one is that um, maybe I haven't, I've just missed it, but Peter and I've looked for um, literature and we don't see any, it's a good book. Maybe it's your next book. <laughs> Scott, you could write, <laughs> or if you've got a PhD student, this would be a good dissertation on if it's true that there has been some empowerment of low-income Americans over the last 50 years, and that faith communities have played a role in that, 
that's a wonderful it's it's important in terms of just being encouraged that we can solve some of our problems and then also analyzing it is important to know how to move forward 